I am so excited uh, to share the stage today with my beautiful bride. Uh, today we are in the middle of our You Asked For It series where we've been answering questions that you guys uh, have submitted. And so we're excited to, to do that today. Let's do it. Let's pray. Uh, God, be with our time today. I encourage those who are here today feeling, feeling like they're running on empty. Uh, fill them up with your love. Uh, God, do great things right here, right now, in this room. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm ready. Let's, you, guys, you guys really got some hard questions, and it just keeps getting harder and harder. And now my wife's here asking them to me, so this is like a double whammy for me. But I, I think I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. How do you handle passages like 1 Corinthians 11 with a fairly direct prescriptive instruction that, at least to me, doesn't fit in today's culture? If you interpret it more literally and tried to implement it, I think you would risk demeaning or ostracizing women. On the other hand, if you're too dismissive, you jeopardize the importance of scripture. And then this person goes on to say, I can hear my rebellious 18-year-old self looking for an excuse to do something rebellious, saying, well, if we don't take this passage seriously, why should I take others seriously? All right. So we're going to have to go through verse by verse this whole chapter, get into the Greek on every single word. No, hey, uh, basically this question in a nutshell is uh, interpret 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Uh, and just to make it brief so it all fits on one slide and you can read it all, uh, really those first 16 uh, verses, uh, those first 16 verses, that's where there's some rub uh, with people. And before we hop into read that passage, I want to lay uh, uh, just a few things to, to consider. Uh, throughout this whole series, we have said uh, God's word is the authority, uh, that we need to read what it is saying, not try to make it say what we want it to say. We want to read what it is saying. And so uh, having said that, all of God's word is inspired, uh, not just the parts that line up with what we already believe, all right? Because if it's what we already believe, we're not actually letting God's word form us. We've already been formed, and we're looking for, for proof. What we want to do is have God's word shape us and form us, uh, and from that come to our opinions. And so uh, having said that, we haven't really talked about uh, kind of the different ways to approach Scripture. Uh, some people approach Scripture just uh, in different ways. There's different ways to, to go about it. And so uh, some people approach it figuratively, uh, and they kind of make it, everything is allegorical. Uh, it's not actually saying what it's saying, but it represents something like that. Uh, and so while that may be, may be the case in certain areas of the Bible, I don't think you want to take that and just apply that to everything because then you can make it say whatever you really want it to say because it's really just an illustration or an allegorical tale that we're reading here. And so uh, what we need to do when we come to the Bible, we need to approach it kind of this threefold interpretation method, all right? We need to take it literal. Uh, historical and grammatical interpretation. And so just to go through that really quick, I want to set this ground rules before we go into this verse because I really think it gives us some context as we dive into the, some of these, uh, uh, some divisive issues, I guess I would say, in some, in some churches. Uh, so literal, we don't need to make non-figurative language uh, figurative. Uh, and so uh, that doesn't mean that the Bible uh, wants you to take every single word literally. Uh, because if you read the Song of Solomon literally, uh, the picture of the beautiful woman that Solomon describes uh, it says your eyes are like turtle doves. Um, that doesn't sound like a beautiful woman to me, okay? Uh, if, that's, if that's literal, that don't sound right. Uh, but he's, it's, it's figurative language there. And so there are times where uh, you want to be figurative when it's speaking poetically. Uh, but there's other times where the Bible is speaking uh, uh, literally, speaking to someone. So it's not uh, a poetic uh, thing. And so uh, if it's figurative, if it's poetry, but we need to interpret the Bible uh, literally using literal language when it's, uh, 
just talking to people. So that's the first thing, historical. You have to think about the time and the place and the people that it was written to. Uh, you can't exclude this because this is a big piece of the puzzle because the world, uh, the way that we operate right now, uh, our world has changed a little bit since Bible times. And there's some truths that do not change, but there's other things that are, that are customs and that are part of our culture, uh, and those things do change. And so uh, that isn't to say that everything we disagree with in the Bible we can just wipe away and say it was a different culture, uh, but we want to look at the culture it was written to to give us a greater insight into the intended purpose of the text. Not what we want it to say, but what the author was intending for it to uh, say and so uh, the last thing, and then we'll we'll hop into this is grammatical. I, I, I don't know if you know this, the Bible is not written in English. All right, there's a lot of English translations, but the original text not in English. That's why you hear pastors talk about Greek or Aramaic, uh, different things. Uh, and there's some parts where the original text that they have, uh, they they don't they didn't use spaces. Okay, you ever, you ever thought about that? Everything read like a hashtag. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, where somebody has a hashtag, and you can read it multiple ways, and you're like, I don't know what this says. Uh, I got a buddy. His name is Chris Todd. His Instagram handle is the Chris Todd. For some reason, my brain, right, pastor, uh, I always read it as the Christ Odd. I, I, don't, I don't know why. I know, but it's my friend Chris. All right? I use context clues to figure out that it's actually just saying the Chris Todd. But every time I see it, I see the Christ odd. And so you have to think about that, that grammatical way of interpreting, interpreting Scripture, that there was a way that this was written. And so you, if there's something where you want to dig deep, you might need to look into that and see how they got to it. Because there's sometimes where Scripture could go one way or another just based off of that, kind of like the way we would see uh, a hashtag there. So we need to look, in conclusion, we need to look at history. We need to look at Scripture with a literal, historical, and grammatical lens, all right? When we put those three things together and we look through those lens, we're going to get the best and most robust interpretation of Scripture. So that's the blueprint uh, to properly interpret a passage of Scripture, okay? We got 16 verses. Y'all ready for this? Let's go. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 11, verse 1. And you should imitate me as I imitate Christ. All right, not a lot of, not a lot of friction there, all right? We're going to get to the, the attention here in just a second. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. Uh-oh, here we go. This is where there's going to be some friction. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. And a man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is just the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for God, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And women reflects man's glory. For first, man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women." For although the first man, woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it right for a woman to pray in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? Isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? 
for it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone here wants to argue this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Um, so the rub, there's, there's three big things that kind of stick out there. Uh, uh, gentlemen, all right, uh, we need to have nothing on our heads. Did everybody take off their hats when they were praying? We talked about this a while back. And, and ladies, nobody's got a haircut lately, right? Like it has to be below the shoulders. Everybody there? No, hey, I, so hey, it talks about three things. There's some rub in here that I think people pick up on, and we're going to go into it and talk about it. It talks about men being the head of women, right? So that kind of, some people take that to say uh, that men are better than women, that we would devalue women, right? We're going to dive into that. Uh, head coverings and prayer. Well, what is it talking about there? And then short and long hair. Uh, we're going to just go right out for the short and long hair really quick because uh, we need Joe to come up here, and we've got to give him a, a, a shaving, the guy who's leading worship, because the guy leading worship had long hair. No, hey. Hey, obviously, all right, uh, just, just real quick, we got Joe leading worship, a dude with long hair, and we got Mel who's helping out with check-in, and she's got really short hair, okay? Uh, so uh, I think we need to take Scripture seriously, but we need to have a holistic approach uh, when it comes to interpreting it. And so uh, let's unpack this passage right here. It says man over woman. That's kind of the first really big uh, rub there, that the head of woman is man, the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. And so I think about this, and when it comes to people feeling like men are over women, that we are more valuable, that women are devalued because men are the head of them, according to this passage, uh, I think that we tend to focus on what affects us. Uh, it's like when you're on a Zoom call, and all you can look at is that just that bottom square there. Like, you know, you're talking to other people, you're just checking out yourself. Like, you're just looking at you, your little miniature version of yourself in that bottom corner. You're like checking your hair, doing everything. All right. Uh, we read this passage and it talked about man, woman, Christ, and God. And we tend to focus on if you're a dude, you're looking at the man. If you're a woman, you're looking at the woman. Uh, but what I want to do is not focus at man or woman, but let's go down the line a little bit. It says that Christ, his head is God. And so I want to zoom away for a little bit. When it comes to talking about the Trinity, all right, that God is three parts in one, that there are three different parts of God. They are all God, but they are not each other. I actually have a slide I should throw up there. It's like a little triangle thing, Todd. Boom, all right. So, hey, there's God in the middle. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Got it? It's kind of like a fidget spinner. All right, it's all different parts of it, but they're all a fidget spinner, but they're all different parts of it. Uh, and so uh, no one would say that God the Father is greater than God the Son. No, they are both fully God. Neither one is less, but it does say that God is the head of Christ. That means that they're not different in value. They both have equal importance, but they have different roles and different responsibilities. They do different things. And so it's not that one is greater than the other. It's just they've been set up to do different things. So when it comes to is saying men being over women, I don't think we need to view that in the same. I think we need to view that in the same sense we would view Christ and the Father. It's not saying that men are better than women, that women are less. It's saying that God's given us different roles and different responsibilities. All right, and we need to view that in the same picture as Christ to God. So not one part being better or superior, but just different roles. Um, and I want to point out uh, right after this, in this layout and the structure of that passage, it says, and everything comes from God. At the end of the day, we are all under one authority, and that's Christ. Right? We are under God. We are under what he has for us. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in this kind of earthly side of things. The thing that we need to do first and foremost is submit to God. That's what we need. Okay, next question. What does it mean to be sovereign what does the Bible say about that? 
All right. I had one more verse uh, that I was going to share at that last passage. Can I, can I do it? I'm sorry. I got out of order. I messed up my wife. Please forgive me. It's Mother's Day. Um, so, hey, I, I think just two little verses there at the last part of it. I think uh, they're just not as grabby, and I want to make sure that I mention them. Uh, verses 11 and 12, it says, But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman. And, again, everything comes from God, uh, I just, we need each other, right? We, we need each other. Men can't go off and do their own thing. Women can't go off and go do their own thing. We need one another, and we need to be on the same team and not be fighting about who's more important. We need to value those that we're with, whether they're men or whether they're women. So I just wanted to, um, yeah, I think, I think we need to hear that. I think in our culture today, there's a lot of people that want to put uh, men down or put women down, just kind of depending on where they're at. And I think we just need to stop seeing each other as the enemy and just unite and be one. Uh, like we talked about last week, being one flesh in a marriage. That's what, that's what we need. Sorry, can you repeat that second question? I apologize. What does it mean to be sovereign? What does the Bible say about that? Ah. Uh, when it comes to sovereignty, I've got a I've got a quote from a, a theologian that I'm going to read to you guys. It's in the Bible app if you're following along there on version. And I don't think I could say it any better than this. It says, God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose. Now, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. Uh, T. Preston Pierce. And so uh, just kind of giving that definition for, for sovereignty to mean that God is sovereign, uh, I think the, the question here is kind of getting at if God has all power and is the ruler of all things, what about, and I got three, I think, big umbrellas that most of those would fall under. What about evil? What, what about free will? And, and what about prayer? We're going to walk through those. So if God has all power and is the ruler of all things, what about Evil, why is there evil in the world if God is all-powerful and he's the controller of all things? So we live in a broken world, and our world does not operate the way that God created it to be. Remember in creation story, it says God created it, and he saw that it was good. It's our sin. It's the sin where Adam and Eve, they ate of the, the, the fruit, okay, and sin entered into the world, and sin brought evil. Uh, but what I think is amazing about God is that even in the evil, in this world, and there, there is a ton of evil. There is a lot that is just wrong. God can make it bend to his will. Uh, and, and so um, there's this passage that's really well known. It's Genesis 20, uh, and I'd love to have the time to, one of these Sundays to go into this, this story and just to, to unpack it. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, it says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Uh, just to get a, a snapshot of that, you intended to harm me, all right? So intended to harm me, let's just see, uh, we go through this, what happened to this guy right here. Uh, his brother sold him into slavery because they're like, well, we shouldn't kill him. Uh, he got uh, get thrown in prison for being falsely accused about trying to rape his boss's wife. Uh, and then uh, he's thrown into prison. Like, this guy has gone through all kinds of terrible things, Things that most of us would never experience. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So even when we have evil things that happen, I believe God can redeem those evil things. Not that he makes those evil things good, but he can make good come from or out of those situ situations. 
He can make good things come from evil things. So whatever you're going through, I just want you to, to take, take rest. That it, it might be a trying, it might be an evil time. And I, I don't want to de- diminish that and say that, oh, it's going to be okay. But I promise you, God can make some good come out of that. He can. So uh, the second one there is free will. So if God has all the power and is the ruler of all things, what about free will? So uh, to kind of say it another way, if God is really sovereign then, and he's in control, then really I don't have any choice in my life. He has predetermined the way that my life will go. What's the point? Like what's the point? If God is in control, what's the point of me? Uh, what, what am I going to do? Like, if he already knows what I'm going to do, he already knows what's going to happen, why bother? Why make an effort to change? He, he, he made me this way, this is how I am. Uh, and so I like to think about choice uh, uh, this way. Um, my kids get upset with me sometimes. The, true? Yep, yep, okay. Uh, usually because I, I'm disciplining them, correcting them in some way. And I always try to finish with, with this, uh, some version of this. Hey, come give me a hug. I love you. And um, can you make your kids hug you and say I love you back? Like, like, yeah, you kind like you can kind of coax it out of them, uh, but it's a pretty weak, like, love you, dad. Like a very weak. It's a dead fish hug. All right, there's no, there's no love in it. I could force them to do that, uh, but it really isn't meaningful because they're doing something they were instructed to do, not something they were actually uh, feeling. Okay, so I think God could force us to do things. I think that's within His power, but He loves us. He's not going to do that. Uh, last Sunday evening, uh, this was probably a bad choice of mine. On a whim, I was like, you know what? Clay really loves Sonic. We're going to go see Sonic 2. And so I got the green light from Mama. Boys, you know what? Would you like to go see Sonic 2 tonight? He, Clay, goes through the roof. Yes! He gives me a giant hug and says, I love you, Dad! Uh, it was awesome. It was like the most real hug and the most sincere, I love you, Dad, uh, that I, like, one of the most I've ever felt. Like, we're literally driving there to the movie theater, and he's, like, like glowing, like, I love you, Dad. Like, he's literally just repeating that in the back. And I'm like, okay, this was worth it. Uh, we got home super late. The next morning was rough. Uh, I don't know if it was worth it in that side, but that front side was really worth it because he was being really affectionate. And it wasn't forced. It wasn't coerced. I just wanted to give a good gift to my son, and he was saying, I love you, Dad. And he gave me a big hug. Yes, God is in control, uh, and it is within his power. He has the ability. He could force us to do things. Uh, It's within his uh, power, but it's not within his character to do so. Because he loves us, he's not going to force that. You can't force love. It it just doesn't work like that. So, yes, he's given us choice. He's given us free will. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26 says this. Just think about this in the context of having the ability to to choose. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Just a few thoughts there. It says gently instruct. I think a lot of us, when we're talking about God and people we disagree with, we tend to get harsh and we tend to get loud. And it says gently, to deal with them gently, gently instruct them. And perhaps God will change their hearts. 
Uh, and I think um, sometimes we get it twisted. We think that we change people. Uh, we don't change people. God does. And we realize that God is the one who changes hearts. It frees us up to be gentle and instruct them in God's way without the pressure of it being all on us. And I think that's a lot of times what we feel is we get, we get riled up because we feel like we have to convince someone. We have, to, we have to show them this way to do the right thing. And, um, you know, we want to gently instruct. We're going to give them the right way. But we don't change people. God does. And so it takes a lot of that pressure off. Uh, the last one, if God has all power and is the ruler of all things, what about prayer? So to say it another way, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, why should I even pray? Doesn't he know what I'm going to say? And so uh, there's this passage in 1 John uh, verse 5, verse 14. It says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Uh, there's something special about prayer that I just, I can't describe. I truly believe God is in full control and all-powerful, and I, I believe there are things that will not happen unless we pray for it. Like, I just, I think that's a principle. Like, you need to pray. Uh, pray big prayers because we serve a big God. And I honestly believe that sometimes we miss out on God doing amazing things in our lives because we're too busy to pray. And I would argue we're too busy not to pray, right? We've got so much going on. We need to include God in the mix because there's no way we can get it right without him. We need him with us. And so that praying getting God into the mix, I think, is one of the best ways right, to get ahead of what life is throwing at you. Not to say that you're going to get it all figured out, but you can trust what God is doing and that he's going to work it all out. One final quote, uh, and I'll move on to the next question. I think just when we think about sovereignty and what God can do, is this is by Charles Spurgeon. It says this, brethren, be willing to see both sides of the shield of truth. Rise above the babyhood, which cannot believe two doctrines until it sees the connecting link. Have you not two eyes, man? Must you put one of them out in order to see clearly? Is it impossible for you to use a spiritual stereoscope and look at two views of truth until they melt into one? And that one becomes more real and actual because it is made up of two. Uh, I love that quote because I just think sometimes when we think about God's sovereignty, we think about free will, we think about all these things here. We want to see both sides of it. And here's what we know. Scripture is clear. God is in control. He has it. He's got it. He wants us to pray, ask big prayers. He wants to move. He wants us to do our part. I can't say I fully get how those intersect, but I know this. Those are two sides of the same truth, and I'm not going to diminish one so that I can comprehend on my human earthly level what God is doing. That's not my job to understand what God's doing. It's my job to follow what he said for me to do. So uh, I just want you to know, be comforted whatever you are going through, uh, whatever the enemy might have meant for evil for you. God can use that for good. That's what it means to say God is sovereign. He can take any evil that comes your way and get some good out of it. All right. Well, this question is from me. This next one is from me. And I'm going to give you the floor and let you take over. And I'm going to hop off of stage. Um, but in thinking about the last two questions, what is your favorite example of God's sovereignty and valuing women? Uh, so I think uh, to think about God weaving his, can we give it up for Kelsey? She told me not to do this, but she did great. Um, I just love being able to share the stage with my wife. It makes me happy and excited. I love it. So I just wanted to give it up to her. 
even though she told me not to, I'm going to love on my wife on Mother's Day. Um, probably going to pay for that later. Anyways, uh, back to her question. Uh, where does it look like, uh, favorite example of the intersect of God's sovereignty and just, just valuing uh, women? Um, and I think uh, just to kind of hit it kind of briefly and quickly move through this, uh, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, uh, you get the genealogy of Jesus. And it gives his, his family tree. It goes through and it lists so-and-so who begot so-and-so. Uh, and four, four women are mentioned in that. And, and when you look at the Bible, that's not really a typical thing to see. When you see a, a, a lineage of a person, it usually is uh, so-and-so. Who was the father of so-and-so? Who was the father of so-and-so? All right, it just keeps going. And so if you look at these women listed and just uh, what we're going to do is look at them and just provide a snapshot just really quickly uh, for each one. Um, and so here's the four women that are listed. The first one is uh, Tamar, Rahab. Uh, Bathsheba, and Mary. So we're going to start at the top there, just a snapshot of Tamar. And I'm going to need you guys to, to track with me on this because I'm going to need you to read through uh, some, some subtext with me, all right? Uh, a snapshot of Tamar. She was married to a man named Ur. Everybody say Ur. <laughs> I had no reason for doing that. I just wanted to see if you guys would do it. Uh, so Ur, according to the Bible, uh, Genesis uh, 38.7, it says this. Here's what we know about Ur. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. This is Tamar's husband. So the Lord took his life. That's all we know about her. Next one. Now, okay, at this time, uh, and the custom at this time was for if somebody was a widowed, that the brother-in-laws would come in and step into the place and try to uh, keep the family line going and that have, have a child with her so that uh, Ur would have a, an heir, all right, that, that would keep going on. And so uh, after that, she was married to her brother-in-law, all right? Uh, her brother-in-law's name was Onan. Uh, and she was married to him so that he could produce an heir for his brother. Uh, Onan uh, didn't really want to do this, had no desire to have a child with Tamar, uh, because it would just mean that his inheritance would just get a smaller piece of the pie from his father. Uh, and so I'm going to need you to, again, read between the lines on this next part. Uh, whenever they partook in uh, child-making activities, Onan would take measures to ensure that a child would not be made. Okay, um, That's as far as I'm going to go. You want to read the story for yourself. It's Genesis 38. It gives a little more detail there, but I'm not going to today on Mother's Day. Uh, Genesis 38.10 says this, But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Tamar is having great luck, all right? <laughs> evil dead, evil dead, okay? Uh, so her, she's been married twice, buried both husbands. First husband it described as uh, wicked, and the second husband it described as evil. And um, just, I'm going really fast through what happened here. If you want to look at this, this is Genesis 38. It would be a good one to kind of look at. Her father-in-law does not treat her right either. Uh, now her father-in-law, he's married his two uh, oldest boys to uh, Tamar, uh, to give her a child, and now he's afraid uh, because he's gone through two, and he's got his youngest child left, and he goes, if she marries my youngest child, he's going to die too. Like, that's what he's thinking, that it says that, all right? Uh, so he, he's, he says, uh, I'll do it, but he's really just a landly no. He doesn't want to do it, and so he, he just keeps pushing that down the road. He has no intention of marrying. Uh, he says, hey, he's too young right now. When he's older, you guys can get married. Uh, I'm just glad we don't live in Bible times because this all sounds a little weird to me. Uh, so uh, the father-in-law is told uh, that uh, Tamar is going around acting like a prostitute and that she got pregnant doing such. A uh, little backstory to this. Uh, she actually tricks her father-in-law, 
Uh, she's kind of wearing uh, a veil over her face. She acts like a prostitute. Her father-in-law comes in, uh, pays for received goods. And so uh, he is told that Tamar is going around acting like a prostitute. And that as a, as, while she's doing this, she got pregnant. And so her father-in-law, this is a quote. I got chapter and verse from this. says, bring her out and let her be burned. You thought your father-in-law was bad. Okay. Uh, then uh, what she does, she reveals the payment that she received for services offered. And it basically, whenever she shows, hey, this is what I got paid for this, it identifies her father-in-law, Judah, as the father of the child. You thought your family was messed up, right? Uh, not exactly the type of person that you'd expect to find in the lineage of Jesus. I don't, I don't know if you caught on there. There was some messy there. That wasn't the clean, perfect, white picket fence family. Uh, there was some mess going on in there. And the Bible goes out of its way, all right? It's not normal for it to mention women. Uh, Tamar is in there listed in the lineage of Jesus. And so after Tamar, the next woman on the list is Rahab. Uh, Rahab, occupation, she's a prostitute, a lady of the night. Okay, I mean, it says that. And she plays a critical role in rescuing two of Joshua's spies. And so Joshua, he sent some spies into the city of Jericho uh, before battle to kind of scope it out. And these two Israelite spies, they stay the night at Rahab's house because she's hiding them. She's hiding them out. Uh, so the king learns that, the king of Jericho learns that their spies have been sent. He sends a party to go find them and arrest them. And Rahab, she hides the spies. Uh, and then she actually delivers a powerful speech uh, to the spy. Uh, she... Excuse me. She delivers a powerful speech to the spies, describing uh, how her people had heard about great, uh, the great victories of the Lord, and it's kind of doing prep work for this. It says that that is one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in the biblical narrative. So she lets the spies escape through her window, which is on the outer wall of Jericho. And so God used a prostitute to save his followers. And she is in Jesus' family tree. It's actually specifically highlighted because it wouldn't be normal to do this. So we got Tamar. Her family was a mess. Uh, Rahab, she uh, is a prostitute, and she saves some of God's people in this story. And then uh, after Rahab, the next woman is Bathsheba. If you have a little bit of a Bible background, background, you've probably heard of Bathsheba before. Uh, she's known as the, she's the woman that King David uh, committed adultery with. Uh, so again, I'm going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version here. Uh, King David was at home in his palace looking out, uh, and it's a war time, so he really shouldn't have been there anyways. He's looking out, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath, right? Bathsheba. It's like, man, that's so easy to remember. She's washing herself, and so he's like, I want some of that. He summons her to come and to be with him. Uh, and so the Bible only really describes Bathsheba as beautiful. So it doesn't give any uh, inferences to how she's feeling about being summoned by the king. The only description we have of her is that she was beautiful. And there's a lot of scholars who would agree that uh, when the king summons you, you must appear. And if you don't do as he says, uh, there's going to be a great risk involved, uh, maybe even to the point of losing your life. And so Bathsheba, she was a married woman. Uh, she gets knocked up by the king uh, while her husband is out fighting in the king's war. Uh, and so when she tells the king, hey, I'm with child, uh, King David, his response is, hey, Uriah, her, her husband, why don't you come back home, uh, take the weekend off, come back home, be with your wife, and then you can go back later and we can get, get going through this, okay? Go back to the war. Really, he's just trying to get an excuse so that everybody will think it's Uriah's child. Uh, there's a problem, though. Uriah is a man of character. Uh, and so instead of going and sleeping at home, he, he slept at the, the palace gate that night. 
And just to put my, my, to paraphrase what he says, how could I go home and sleep at home, have the comfort of my food, my house, and my wife when my men are camping in open fields, living in tents, and fighting battles? How could I do that? So David's next solution, I tried to deceive everybody, make them think the child is uh, Bathsheba's husband. I can't do that, so now I need to have Uriah killed. So he sends him out to uh, battle. He actually, Uriah, he gives Uriah the message to give to his leader to send him out. He's literally carrying the message that's going to gonna kill him. He puts Uriah into an impossible situation, guaranteeing that Uriah dies in battle. Uriah goes to battle, dies, says, as soon as Bathsheba finished mourning, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. So to recap, Bathsheba is uh, probably sexually assaulted here, possibly complicit in an affair. I don't, I don't really get that from Scripture. Uh, most likely it's the former there. Uh, she gets pregnant with a child that she wasn't expecting, she wasn't planning on having. Uh, after that, her husband is killed, and she is called immediately to come and live at the palace with the man who had her husband killed. Just what every little girl dreams of, right? Dream marriage. And so living in the palace might be a good life, but I don't think that's how she would have wanted to get there. The Bible goes out of its way to mention Bathsheba. Now we get to the last woman mentioned. That'd be Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary is believed to be a teenager when she was pregnant with Jesus. She was actually engaged. That was common to be uh, married that young in life then. Uh, and because of this pregnancy, at one point, her fiancé comes to her, and, and he's going to divorce her because he's like, I know this kid ain't mine, right? And an angel actually comes and tells him to stop, to reassure him it's okay. I promise she did not cheat on you. It's kind of a divine thing. There's this miracle that happened. Um, and so this teen mom goes on to be the mother of the Savior of the world. I'm going to recap through those really quick. Tamar, she's double widowed and a sly prostitute, right? Team Jesus. Rahab, her, her full-time occupation, prostitute, Team Jesus. Bathsheba, her husband is murdered. Uh, she has an unplanned pregnancy. She's a victim of sexual assault. Uh, team Jesus. Then we have Mary, the teen mom. Team Jesus. Why would God in his sovereignty, why would he mention these people, these women, in the lineage of Jesus? It would, it would have been a lot easier to just list the men and not have to deal with it. It's kind of the way we think here on this earth. But they're there for a reason. If God's put it there, it's there for a reason. Remember, God is working it all together. If you wanted to edit that out of the Bible, just to like to not mention that part in Jesus' lineage, he could have done that. He specifically mentions these people that have stained reputations for a point. There is no one too far gone God's grace is stronger than any mess you find yourself in. Not only is his grace stronger, uh, he wants to clean up that mess. Uh, he, he's not going to begrudgingly do it. Think about it. He could have cleaned up the he could have cleaned up the mess in these women's lives and then never brought it up again. Because their, their stories do get better. He does work in them. Could have just never brought it up again. He wants us to know. He wants everyone to remember. That those others call unredeemable, those that others look at and say those are broken people, those, those are worthless people, those are dirty people. He wants us to know that God, he sees them, 
He loves them. He redeems them. He makes them whole. He gives them value. He cleans up their mess. And the best part is, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. And just like God is for them, God is for you. I don't know what kind of emotions are going through your head right now. But I want you to know this. You are made in the image of God, and he loves you. He is enough. He's enough. Whatever kind of issues you've had, whatever kind of heartbreak you're going through or have gone through, he can redeem it. He values you. He loves you. And he doesn't come and give you that hug and say, I love you, and kind of that dead fish hug. No, he wants to hug you with both arms and to bear hug you and just say, I love you. That's what he wants. Don't ever think that he doesn't love you like that. Whatever's going on in your life, that's how he loves you. As we get ready to enter into this response time, we're going to sing one last song, uh, close with a moment of prayer and worship. I just, I just want to share a thought. Uh, this, this response time, uh, it really should be like a bookmark. Um, I don't know about you. Uh, I'm kind of hard-headed sometimes. I try to just do things without a bookmark. I don't know if you ever live like that, or like you put the book upside down, uh, or maybe you're reading digitally, and you're like, no, I'm not going to touch this. When I come back, it's going to be right where I was, and then like my kid gets a hold of it, and I have no idea where I was in that book. Uh, if you don't use the bookmark, it just, it just doesn't work, all right? Uh, I just start folding the pages on the corners down, which I know makes some people mad. But, but what a bookmark really does, uh, it, it, and that's really what we want you to do at this time, uh, is you place a marker in there so that when you come back to it, you know where you were at. And that's really what I want you to do with this response time. To place a marker so that you can remember what God has shown you today. We've gone through a lot today, and I hope that God has put something on your heart that he's just stirring in you, that you just, you, you put that bookmark there so you can remember it. And not just remember it to just remember it, but that when you go throughout this next week, uh, you can pick it up and remember it again, because you might need it to put a bookmark in it, to place a marker, to remember what God has shown you today so you can pick it up when you need it later this week. So today as we sing one last song, I want to encourage you to do two things, to, to create this bookmark. Uh, so as we start to sing, I want you to do this, to, to say a prayer to God, to talk to him. I just talked about something that spoke to your soul. Like, God, I can't believe you love me like that. I'm imperfect. Whatever it might be, I promise you he wants to hear you. He loves to hear you. You could pray alone. Maybe pray with a friend or a spouse. Whatever you want to do. I want you to take a moment and pray. Whatever God's put on your heart. He wants to hear from you. And the second thing I want you to do is I just want you to give it up to God with your voice. To sing praises. To be loud. To worship him. Uh, it doesn't have to be pretty or nice. In fact, I know that mine is not going to be. It ain't going to sound good to anybody who's sitting next to me. Sorry. It ain't about you, though. It's about my God. I'm going to give my all for him. So let's bookmark this service. I want you to do two things. I want you to say a prayer, whether that's alone or with someone, just about what God is doing in your heart right now. I want you to sing passionately. Sing passionately. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to show up and stir in hearts in this room. <laughs> On this wonderful Mother's Day, help us to remember what you've done for us and help us to never forget 
how much you love us. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.